The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister, Mr. William Bain. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to the servicemen who've tragically fallen since we last met for Prime Minister's questions. Lance Corporal Duane Groom of 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, Sergeant Gareth Thursby and Private Thomas Rowe of the 3rd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Sergeant Jonathan Coops of the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, Captain James Townley of the Royal Engineers, and Captain Carl Manley of the Royal Marines. Once again, we're reminded of the immense danger our armed forces operate in to uphold our safety and our security. Their families and the whole country should rightly be proud of their heroic service, and we will always remember them. The House, I'm sure, will also wish to join me in paying tribute to PC Fiona Bone and PC Nicola Hughes, who were killed, brutally murdered, in the line of duty on the 18th of September. The whole country has been deeply shocked and saddened by the loss of these two young, dedicated, exceptional officers. Our thoughts are with their families and with their colleagues at what must be a very, very difficult time. Mr Speaker, I also know the House would wish to join me in sending our heartfelt condolences to the family of Malcolm Wicks, who sadly passed away on the 29th of September. I think all sides of this House will remember Malcolm as a real gentleman, a man of great integrity and compassion, who put his constituents first, who worked across party lines, and who was a thoroughly decent man. He served the House with great distinction for 20 years, and I know he'll be missed by all who knew him. Mr Speaker, we must also pay tribute to another of Parliament's great characters, and it's hard not to believe that he's not sitting right there in front of me, Sir Stuart Bell. Sir Stuart was hugely popular uh, across the House and was honoured for his services to Parliament. I think we'll always remember him as a passionate, dedicated member of the House who, again, his kindness transcended the political divide. We send our sincere sympathies to his wife and family at this difficult time. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr William Bay. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I associate all honourable and right honourable members with the Prime Minister's tribute to the members of the armed forces and the police who have died in the service of our country and to their families, and also how much we in this House will miss, uh, and the people of Middlesbrough and Croydon North will miss uh, Sir Stuart Bell and Malcolm Wicks. Uh, Mr Speaker, last week the Prime Minister promised that work would always pay, but this morning Baroness Grey Thompson and the Children's Society have revealed that his current plans for universal credit next year will mean that up to 116,000 disabled people in work could lose as much as £40 a week. Doesn't it say everything about how this divisive Prime Minister always stands up for the wrong people, always stands up for the wrong people, when at the same time as handing huge tax cuts to 8,000 people earning over a million pounds a year, he is going to penalise some of the bravest drivers in our country. Minister, the, the Honourable Gentleman raises an extremely serious issue, and let me try and deal with it as fully as I can. The money that is going into disability benefit will not go down under universal credit, it will go up. The overall amount of money will go from £1.35 billion last year to £1.45 billion in 2015. Under the plans, no recipients will lose out unless their circumstances change. All current recipients are fully cash protected by a transitional scheme. 
But what we are doing, and this is important, and this is a decision and a choice that we've made, is that future recipients, we're going to increase the amount that we give to the most severely disabled children, and there will be a new lower amount for less disabled people. That's a choice we're making. As I say, increasing the overall amount of money, focusing on the most disabled, that I think shows the right values and the right approach. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. May I congratulate the government on the early introduction of the Grocery Adjudicator Bill? Uh, certainly, farmers, farmers, and third-world developing country producers desperately need protection from what I think have been described by the Competition Commission as bully boy tactics of some of the supermarket buyers. So, uh, in view of that and the welcome introduction of this, could I ask um, how quickly, how quickly will it be before the government actually introduced this, this vitally important measure? Mr. Well, we are making progress with introducing this measure, and as my right and old friend says, I think it is an important uh, measure. I think it's very important that we stand up for farmers, that farmers get a fair deal from supermarkets. I think on occasions there have been unfair practices of things like in-year re retrospective discounts that have sometimes been proposed, and I think this bill will be a major step forward. Mr Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the six servicemen that have died since the House last met. Lance Corporal, Lance Corporal Dwayne Groom of 1st Battalion, the Grenadier Guards, Sergeant Gareth Thursby and Private Thomas Rowe of 3rd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Sergeant Jonathan Coops of the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, Captain James Townley of the Corps of Royal Engineers, and Captain Carl Manley of the Royal Marines. They all died heroically serving our country. They showed the utmost bravery and sacrifice, and our condolences go to their families and friends. I also join him in paying tribute to PCs Fiona Bone and Nicola Hughes. They remind us of the dangerous work, Mr Speaker, that our police officers do day in and day out in the line of duty. Their death is a great loss to the Greater Manchester Police, the communities they served, and most of all, most of, all of course, to their families. I also want to thank the Prime Minister for his very generous comments about the two Labour colleagues that we have lost since we last met. Stuart Bell was the son of a miner. He was a long-standing member of this House. He was passionate about European issues, and he served with distinction as a church commissioner. And his death was incredibly sudden. His illness diagnosed just a matter of days before he died. The condolences of this side of the House, and I know the whole House, go to his family. And let me just say about Malcolm Wicks, he was one of the deepest thinkers uh, in this House. He was a brilliant minister. I know from my time as the Energy Secretary what a brilliant energy minister he was. And he was also somebody who faced his Ill illness with the utmost bravery. Uh, he knew what was going to happen to him, but he carried on writing, thinking, talking, and indeed engaging with the work of this House. And my last conversation with him was just before our party conference, where he talked passionately about politics, as he always did. And again, our condolences go to his whole family. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the unemployment figures today are welcome, particularly the fall in youth unemployment. I'm sure we all agree that there are too many people still looking for work, and the number of people out of work for a long period, over a year, remains stubbornly high. Can the Prime Minister tell us why he believes the fall this quarter in unemployment is not yet being matched by the figures for long-term unemployment? Prime Minister. 
Well, first of all, let me thank the right honourable gentleman for his generous remarks uh, about those who have fallen, about those brave police, police officers, and also about the colleagues that we've lost uh, fr from this House. In terms of the unemployment figures, uh, I think this is uh, a good piece of news that should be properly welcomed and look at, looked at, because basically a number of different things are happening. Uh, employment is up by 212,000 this quarter. Unemployment is down by 50,000 this quarter. The claimant count has actually fallen by 4 and what that means is actually since the election is there are some 170,000 fewer people on out-of-work benefits. And, and what is, I think, quite, quite remarkable about the figures is they actually show there are more women in work than at any time in our history. And actually the overall level of employment is now above where it was before the crash in 2008. So look, we've still got huge economic challenges to meet. We are in a global race. We do need to make a whole set of reforms in our country country, to education, to welfare, and to help grow the private sector, but this is positive news today. In terms of long-term unemployment, it's still too high. I think that's partly because of the big increase in unemployment that took place at the time of the crash, but we need to do more uh, to deal with long-term unemployment, and that is why the work program has helped 693,000 people already, and of course we're prepared to spend up to £14,000 on one individual long-term unemployed person to get them back into work. So I think we do have the measures in place to tackle the scourge. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, notwithstanding that, unemployment, youth unemployment, long-term unemployment and long-term youth unemployment are all higher than when he came to office. Now, on the, on the particular issue about long-term youth unemployment, I don't think he can attribute it to the crash that happened four years ago because it's been steadily rising over the last year or 18 months. Uh, and, it, it remains, and, and it remains... And it, and it remains a, a big concern. The number of people out of work for more than a year is continuing to rise. Does he agree with me that the longer young people remain out of work, the greater the damage, not just now, but to their long-term prospects and the greater damage to our economy? Of course he's right. The longer people are out of work, the worse for them, the worse for our economy. That is why we have the youth contract. That is why we have the work programme, which is the biggest back-to-work uh, programme since the war. He mentions the problem of long-term unemployment. I would just remind him, in the last two years of the last Labour government, long-term unemployment almost doubled. So I think we should hear about that before we get a, a lecture. In terms of helping young people, it is also noticeable that under this government, 900,000 people have started apprenticeships, we're backing apprenticeship schemes, and we're also reforming our schools and welfare system so that it pays for people to get those jobs. We face enormous economic challenges in this country. Nobody doubts that. We have to rebalance our economy because the state sector was too big, the private sector was too small. But what's happened since the election is one million new private sector jobs, which more than makes up for the inevitable loss of jobs in the state sector. We've got a huge amount more to do, but reform welfare, reform our schools, boost our private sector, and Britain can be a winner in the global race. I would just say to him on long-term unemployment, there are more people out of work for longer than at any time for two decades, and that is happening on his watch. Now, I want to turn to one group in particular who are losing their jobs directly as a result of the government's policy. A year ago, he told me at this dispatch box, and I quote, there is no reason for there to be fewer frontline police officers. Can he now tell the House how many frontline police officers have lost their jobs since the election? The percentage of officers on frontline duties has gone up. I think that is the key. Frankly, frankly, whoever, whoever 
last election was going to have to reduce police budgets. They were committed to reducing police budgets. We've had to reduce police budgets. The reason why we've been able to increase the percentage is because we've cut the paperwork, we've taken difficult decisions about pay, we've taken difficult decisions about allowances. And what is remarkable is while the percentage of officers on the front line is up, crime is down. I really hoped, just for once, we would get a straight answer. And, 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 and all the Prime Minister needs to do, all, uh, they'll, they'll like this, Mr Speaker, all the Prime Minister needs to do, all the Prime Minister needs to do is take a leaf out of the Police Minister's book. Because on Monday, he told the House the truth. He said there are 6,778 fewer frontline police officers than when he came to power. Why not just... I don't think he's going to help you, Mr Speaker. Uh, uh, Maybe the part-time Chancellor's taking over the the Home Office. Another promise broken. And they're not just breaking their promises, it's their conduct as well. This is... This is... This is... This is what the Mayor of London said. This... It will just take longer to get in backbenchers who do wish to participate as opposed to shouting and screaming in a juvenile fashion because I'll have to extend the session. The Leader of the Opposition will be heard and the Prime Minister will be heard. That is the end of it. Mr Ed Miliband. This is what the Mayor of London, Mr Speaker, his new best mate, uh, said last year at, uh, at Conservative Party conference. I reckon we need to make it clear that if people swear at the police, then they must expect to be arrested. He, he says he didn't. He says from a sedentary position he didn't. Maybe he'll tell us what he actually did say. Yeah, according to the official police report, and I quote, a man claiming to be the chief whip called the police plebs, told them they should know their place and use other abusive language. Can the Prime Minister now tell us, did the chief whip use those words? Prime Minister. What the Chief Whip did and what the Chief Whip said were wrong, right? I'm absolutely clear about that, and I've been clear throughout. And that's why it's important that the Chief Whip apologised. That apology has been accepted by the... Order! Order! I said a moment ago that the Leader of the Opposition must and would be heard. The same goes for the Prime Minister. He must and will be heard. The Prime Minister. What the Chief Whip did and said was wrong, and that is why it is important that he apologised and apologised properly. That apology has been accepted by the officer concerned. It's been accepted by the head of the Metropolitan Police. And that is why this government will get on with the big issues of helping Britain compete and succeed in the world. on police numbers and no straight answers on the chief whip. And Mr Speaker, just because a police officer, he says it's the real issues, I think it is a real issue, abusing police officers. Just just because a police officer has better manners than the chief whip, it doesn't mean he should keep his job. Now, if a job in a city centre on a Saturday night abused a police officer ranting and raving, the chances are they'd be arrested and placed in the back of a police van. And rightly so. And the Prime Minister will be the first in the queue to say it was right. But while it's a night in the cell for the Yobs, it's a night at the Carlton Club for the Chief Whip. Isn't that the clearest 
case there could be of total double standard. This apology has been accepted by the police officer, it's been accepted by the head of the Metropolitan Police, it's clearly not going to be accepted by the leader of the opposition because he doesn't want to talk about what we need to do in this country to get our deficit down because he's got no plans. He doesn't want to talk about how we build on our record in employment because he's got no plans. He doesn't want to talk about how we reform welfare because he's opposed to welfare caps. That is the truth. He wants to discuss these issues because he's got nothing Nothing serious to say about the country. Here's, here's the most extraordinary thing, Mr. Speaker. They say that I practice class war, and they go around calling people plebs. I mean, can you believe? Can you believe it? And look, I, I have to say, it's good to see the cabinet in their place, supporting him in public. But in the newspapers, what are they saying in private? He's completely undermined. His position is untenable. In other words, he's toast, and that is the reality. And here. Truth about this government. While everybody else loses their jobs, the chief whip keeps his. If you're a millionaire, you get a tax cut. If you're everybody else, you get a tax rise. He wrote those questions yesterday before unemployment fell. Yes, let me just, because he obviously wasn't listening earlier, let me remind him. Employment is up 212,000. That's a success. Unemployment down 50,000 this quarter. That's a success. The claimant down, count down 4,000. That's a success. Typical. He comes to this house, he's written out his clever political questions. He doesn't care what's really happening in our economy. Mr. Glyn Davis. Order! Mr. Glyn Davis. Over two weeks ago, Mr. Speaker, April Jones, a five year old little girl, was abducted when playing with her friends in Machanthath, in my constituency, a very quiet, a very well behaved, always town. Will my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, join with me in paying tribute? to the truly amazing way in which the people of Machatlith, yeah, 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 the David yeah, yeah. Powers Police, the mountain rescue teams, have come together and, uh, and committed to the ongoing search for April. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I will certainly join my honourable friend in doing that. I think the whole country uh, has not only been shocked by these appalling events, but also I think the whole country, frankly, has been, been lifted and incredibly impressed by the response of this community, McCunleth, and all everything has done, everybody has done to help the police, to help the emergency services. We've seen a whole community come together, not just in grief, but in action uh, to help this family, and I think it's a huge credit to everyone involved. Mr Chris Williamson. Mr Speaker, at uh, the Prime Minister's Energy Summit last year, he promised faithfully that he would take action to help people reduce their energy bills. Can you tell the House and the country how's it going? Prime Minister. Well, we've encouraged people to switch, which is one of the best ways to get your energy bills down. And I can announce, which I'm sure he will welcome, is that we will be legislating so that energy companies have to give the lowest tariff to their customers, something Labour didn't do in 13 years even though the leader of the Labour Party actually could have done because he had the job. 
order. Question four, closed question. Dr. Julian Lewis. Number four, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I know that my honourable friend will be delighted to know that the answer is yes. We are committed to retaining an independent nuclear deterrent based on the Trident missile system, and that is why we've continued with the programme to replace the Vanguard-class submarines, including placing initial design contracts with BAE systems. Dr. Julian Lewis. That is indeed an excellent answer, Mr. Speaker. Given that a part-time nuclear deterrent would be dangerously destabilising, will the Prime Minister confirm that the British Trident successor submarines must and will operate on the basis of continuous at-sea deterrence? Prime Minister. I think my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this issue. One of the key elements of the credibility of our deterrent has been the fact that it is continuously at sea. It's something that the Royal Navy take immense pride in, and being able to deliver that without a break over so many years. And having actually met some of the crews and visited some of the submarines, it is incredibly impressive what they do, and I pay tribute to them for the service that they provide. Yes, continuously at sea is a key part of our deterrent. Mr Kevin Brennan. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, in a parliamentary answer to my friend from Wrexham yesterday, the government said, and I quote, we remain very concerned by continuing reports of Rwandan support for the M23 rebels who are killing, maiming and raping in East Congo. So why then did the government chief whip authorise the payment of £16 million of British taxpayers' money to Rwanda as his parting shot on his very last day as International Development Secretary. Prime Minister. First of all, if I could wish the Honourable Gentleman happy birthday for yesterday. Yeah, uh, he yeah, was yeah. seen celebrating it, and I'd like to join in that. But I think the point is... Um, the point is, is very... I'm sorry I wasn't invited. It's a very important point that he... Um, <laughs> It's a very all right. It's a very important point that he raises. Look, I'm clear. Rwanda has been and continues to be a success story of a country that has gone from genocide and disaster to being a role model for development and lifting people out of poverty in Africa. And I'm proud of the fact that the last government and this government have continued to invest in that success. But I'm equally clear that we should be very frank and very firm with President Kagame and the Rwandan regime that we do not accept that they should be supporting. Uh, militias in the Congo or elsewhere. I've raised this issue personally with the President, but I continue to believe that investing in Rwanda's success as one of those countries in Africa that is showing you can break the cycle of poverty, you can improve conditions for your people, is something that we're right to do. John Glenn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, the unemployment figures show a reduction of 62,000 in the number of 16 to 24-year-olds out of work yeah, yeah. for the three months to August, and that employment is now at the highest level since records began in 1971. I'm sure the Prime Minister will want to commend the economic policies of this government to the whole House, rather than more borrowing and spending from opposite. Friend makes an important point, which is what we need is a rebalancing of the economy. We need growth in our private sector, and it is notable that we've got a million new private sector jobs since the last election, and that has more than made up for the job losses in the public sector. There's more we need to do to tackle youth unemployment, to tackle long-term unemployment, but the figures today are something that should be welcomed. Julie Hilling. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Aaron Moon, lost his leg in Afghanistan. He then lost his disability living allowance. The Prime Minister promised to look after ex-servicemen and women. What's happened? 
I have insisted on a specific carve-out from the new PIP for limbless ex-servicemen, and they will be separately uh, looked after through the Ministry of Defence. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This House agrees that it demeans politics when negative campaigning, deliberately designed to scare vulnerable people, is used. A campaign to save our hospital when our hospital is not closing is possibly the worst example of that I've ever seen. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that Labour's campaign in Corby and East Northamptonshire is an absolute disgrace? is entirely right. Labour MP after Labour MP is trooping up to Corby and claiming this hospital isn't safe. And they know that is simply not true. And the local newspaper is now backing up the fact that this hospital is being invested in by this government because unlike the party opposite, and yes you are over there, and you know what, you're going to stay there for a very, very long time. spending and more debt. So get yourself comfortable. Why isn't the Prime Minister Why won't the Prime Minister over here? Why won't the Prime Minister publish all the texts, emails and other forms of correspondence between himself and his office and Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson and the News, and News International? Is it because, so that we can judge whether they're relevant, is it because they're too salacious and embarrassing for the Prime Minister or is it, I wouldn't smile, when the truth comes out the Prime Minister won't be smiling or is it because there's one rule for the Prime Minister and another for the rest of us? Mr Speaker, before answering this question, I would just like everyone to recall that the Honourable Member stood up in this House and read out a whole lot of Leveson information that was under embargo and he was not meant to read out, much of which turned out about me to be untrue and he has never apologised. And do you know what? Until he apologises, I'm not going to answer his questions. and courtesy to hear Mr Bebb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Employment, employment levels in Wales have increased by 40,000 in the last quarter, not least because of the contribution of self-employment. Will the Prime Minister therefore join me in welcoming the extension of the new enterprise allowance, which has already seen the creation of over 8,000 new businesses? I will certainly join my honourable friend. This is an important announcement because the new enterprise allowance gives people who become unemployed the chance to set up their own business, their own enterprise. Under the current rules, they have to wait three months before being able to access that programme. But under our plans, they'll be able to get that from day one of becoming unemployed. And I want to see many more new businesses started up in our country to build on the record of last year where more businesses were established in Britain than any year in our recent history. Ms. Wayne. Thank you. 
you, Mr. Speaker. When in opposition, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, all too often, when, put, when questions are put to ministers, the answer is pretty much met as a not me gub shrug of the shoulders. There is a serious accountability problem with our political system. So, can the Prime Minister tell us which one of his cabinet ministers is going to take responsibility for the fiasco of the West Coast mainline? That the Transport Secretary came to this House and made a very full statement and gave a very full apology for what had happened. And I have to ask the House, can we ever remember a minister from the party opposite ever apologising for anything? Anyone? None. Sir Nick Harvey. Mr Speaker, returning to the Trident issue, has the Prime Minister looked at the severe cost pressures facing defence at the very moment Trident replacement has to be paid for? Joint strike fighter airplanes, Type 26 frigates, unmanned aircraft, uh, army vehicles, all need paying for at much the same time. Now, this has to come out of the defence budget, and austerity is with us for some time yet. Will the Prime Minister keep an open mind on how exactly to replace our nuclear deterrent? Yeah. Prime Minister... First of all, uh, what I'd say to my honourable friend is the list of things that he uh, goes through are all programmes that are fully funded and properly going to be invested in because this government has sorted out, as he well knows because he played a major role in it, has sorted out the defence budget. What I would say to him about the nuclear deterrent, and I've looked at this issue carefully, is I don't believe that we would save money by adopting some alternative uh, nuclear deterrent posture. And also, if you're going to have a nuclear deterrent, I think it makes sense to make sure you have something that is credible and believable. Otherwise, there's no point in having one at all. Mr Ian Paisley. There are record levels of support for the British Union. In a recent poll, the Prime Minister will know that 7%, only 7% of the populace of Northern Ireland want a united Ireland, and that that only rises to 32% in 20 years' time, if asked the question then. Does the Prime Minister agree that the agreement that the agreement that he signed up to this week to ensure that there is a single decisive question asked on the Scottish and British yeah, Union, yeah, that it is now up to him and this House to unite in a campaign to maintain, sustain and support the Union and keep McNeil and Wishart with us forever? in the most positive way that I can to his question. I'm very pleased that we've reached an agreement with the Scottish Government to have a single, simple question in a referendum that must be held before the end of 2014 so we can put beyond doubt the future of the United Kingdom. And I hope that everyone will vote to keep the UK together. And I know this will have cross-party support. And I hope the politicians of all parties will agree to share platforms together. I've always wanted to share a platform with Ian Paisley. Maybe I'll get my chance. Nadine Dory. Recently, a lap dancing club in Amptill, a rural market town in my constituency, has been granted a licence. And the one thing that residents of Mid Bedfordshire have learned is that it doesn't matter if it's a Wembley sized incinerator or a lap dancing club in a beautiful market town. The wishes of local people have absolutely no weight whatsoever in planning law. 
Would the Prime Minister agree with me that it's time we amend the planning law so that when catastrophic applications come forward, which blight the environment which people live in, which distresses them to a great degree, that their views and their voice should be heard? I think my honourable friend speaks for many people about the frustration that the planning system can sometimes deliver. I'd make two points where I think we are making some progress. First of all, we have changed the licensing laws to give uh, the planners greater power to alter licences, and I believe that can apply to the sorts of premises that she refers to. The second thing is, of course, under our plans, people can write neighbourhood plans which give far greater control to residents about the shape of their future community. But I'd encourage her to take up the specific issue with the Department of Communities and Local Government to see whether there's more that we can do. Tony Lloyd. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I uh, thank the both front benches for the tributes to Fiona Byrne and Nicola Hughes, who were, were murdered in Greater Manchester recently? But on the theme, though, of policing, the, as the House has heard, the, there are nearly 7,000 frontline police that the Home Office admits have now disappeared from our system. Now, the, the, the Prime Minister promised that wouldn't be the case, and the public don't want that. Will the Prime Minister, in what I think will be my last question to him in this House, give me a straightforward answer? And will he give a com- commitment that there will be no more cuts, whatever happens in the bu- budgetary process, to policing in England and Wales? Yeah. Well, of course, no one wants to prejudge the uh, wisdom of the Greater Manchester electorate, but I wish uh, uh, the Honourable Gentleman well if he is successful. The point I would make to him is the point that I hope the Chief Constable of his own force will make to him, and I think said very effectively when Chief Constable Fahey of Greater Manchester said this, the effectiveness of policing cannot be measured by the number of officers, but by reductions in crime. That is what he said. Crime in Greater Manchester is down 12%, and I think we need to recognise the fact that there are difficult decisions, and frankly the Labour Party was committed to even greater cuts in police budgets than we have delivered. The key is can we crack down on the paperwork? Can we help get the police out on the beat? Can we help them do the job they do, and can we cut crime? And the answer in this case is yes, we can. Mr Gavin Barwell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join uh, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition in paying tribute to Malcolm Wicks, whose memorial service is at Croydon Minster this Friday? He was an outstanding local MP, a thoughtful, decent man, and a good friend. Isn't one way in which we can honour his memory to continue to improve our National Health Service so that more and more people beat cancer and don't have their lives so tragically cut short? My honourable friend speaks for the whole House and what he says about Malcolm Wicks. I I understand that he often used to drive Malcolm home to Croydon uh, after the vote and uh, Malcolm referred to your car, I think, as the cab and the fare apparently was a bottle of wine at Christmas time. I think we'll uh, we'll make sure the Inland Revenue lay off that, but I think it's a very good (laughs) arrangement between uh, members. I think he's absolutely right. One of the greatest things we can do to remember Malcolm is ensure the continued success of the Cancer Drugs Fund, which has helped over 20,000 people, and make sure that people can get... urgent treatments as well as urgent drugs. Natasha Rangel. The Secretary of State for Education said this weekend that if there were a referendum on Britain's continued membership of the EU, he would vote to leave. A third of the Cabinet agree with him. How would the Prime Minister vote? As I said, I don't want an in-out referendum because I'm not happy with us leaving the European Union, but I'm not happy with the status quo either. I think what the vast majority of this country wants is a new settlement with Europe and then that settlement being put to fresh consent. That's what will be going in our manifesto and I think you'll get a ringing endorsement from the British people. Last but not least, Sir Tony Baldry. Does my right honourable friend agree that there were... Does my right honourable friend agree that there was no structural deficit 
at the top of the boom, um, as claimed by the Shadow Chancellor. Ah. Ah. I think my right hon. Friend makes an important point, which is in the IMF report uh, out this week, it shows that the structural deficit in 2007, at the height of the boom, was 5% of our GDP, or actually £73 billion. Now, the Shadow Chancellor said there was no structural deficit, and I think this really demonstrates just how little they have learned. Now, Mr. Speaker, we've talked about our plans for the British economy, how we're going to help it compete and succeed. We know their plans for this weekend to go on a giant march with their trade union paymasters. That is how the Leader of the Opposition is going to be spending his weekend, the most lucrative sponsored walk in history. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.